Welcome to another Sunday morning sermon from Marysville Christian Church. We're glad you're here joining us on this journey to learn more, love more, and look more like Jesus. We invite you to grab a cup of coffee and a Bible as we dive into God's Word. Always so many stinking questions when little kids are involved. Do I have to go? Where are we going? How much longer is it going to take? Are we there yet? Can we go now? And it just seems to never end, right? But eventually those questions get bigger and bigger and more significant. And we have to figure out how to answer them. Like, is there really a God? Do I have to go to church? How do we know the Bible's real? How do we know, well, why did God, well, why doesn't God? Why did they, if they're supposed to be a Christian? Big questions. A lot of those are the reason why we're putting together a, a series of lessons for, uh, for our kids. Uh, Alex and, uh, and Scott and others will be teaching them on Sunday night some of the answers to those questions. Uh, John Alexander's teaching uh, and addressing some of those questions and answers on Sunday morning at 9 o'clock in the chapel. We hope to see you uh, continue to make that a priority. If you've got people that are asking you those questions, even if you don't have kids, if they're co-workers, if they're family members, that's one of the points of having Bible class. And if that doesn't happen to intrigue you, then in here we're going to be studying Galatians for the next few weeks. If that's not necessarily striking a chord with you, maybe, just maybe, the idea of how do I know I'm right with God? Well, that happens to be one of the things addressed in the book of Galatians, and that's what we're talking about as well. So we hope you'll take advantage of those opportunities at 9 o'clock to help you figure out some of the answers to those big questions in life. H.G. Wells phrased it this way, though, if there is no God, nothing matters. If there is a God, nothing else matters. And eventually we come to that conclusion in our own minds. You see, people always had questions for Jesus. It, it really isn't anything new. Anywhere from, <laughs> anywhere from Jesus' own mother when he was 12 years old and they'd lost track of him when they went to the Passover in Jerusalem. They searched for three days. They had to go, they'd traveled a day away. They looked around and found out he wasn't with them. He wasn't riding with his cousins or, you know, somebody else from the village. And so they went back to Jerusalem. You know how much fun it is when dad has to turn this card around. <laughs> They get back to Jerusalem, they're looking everywhere, it's Passover, think Black Friday shopping, they can't find him anywhere. When they finally find him, his own mother, I have an idea, just kind of gets a hold of his arm, pulls him to the side, looks him in the eye for that four-eye conference that only a mother can give. Why have you treated us like this, she says in Luke 2. To verse 49. Oh, you know, there were other 
questions that people had that for Jesus that were sincere. Like, you know, in Mark 10, there's this young guy that comes to him. I mean, life's been good to him. He's young. He's got power. He's got authority. He's in control of his life. He's supervising others. He's considered a rich young ruler. So wealth and money is not an issue. Debt is the last thing on his mind. When was the last time a young person didn't have to worry about debt, right? And yet in that kind of a scenario, even though everything looks like it's going his way, he comes to Jesus and in Mark 10, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, even at his point in life, he realized this isn't going to last. What's next? Or maybe he's focused on, maybe he's realizing that the reason why he's in the position he's in is because daddy died and grandpa died early before that and Mr. Rockefeller now comes to church to talk to Jesus. Maybe that's why he was a wealthy ruler in his youth. And maybe he's just focused on, how can I guarantee this inheritance is going to last? And sometimes they came to Jesus with questions because they just didn't understand some of the things that they'd been hearing him teach. A guy named Nicodemus, who was an older spiritual leader, comes to him and is recorded in John 3. And he says, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he go back into his mother's womb? He just, you're never really sure whether he's being sarcastic with Jesus or whether he's just really totally confused about whether it's a spiritual thing or an allegory or, or whether it's possibly real. And then sometimes people came to Jesus with questions that were purely philosophical. Like his disciples were walking along with him one day. They walked past a blind man in John 9. They observed the blind man and it's kind of funny because, it, let me rephrase that, it's kind of odd or just ironic because they walk by somebody who's down on his luck, who has never had luck, he was born blind, and the only thing they can look at is they see somebody who's a philosophical question mark. And so they ask Jesus in John 9, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind like this? It, it just didn't make sense to them, right? But sometimes those questions were sincere. Sometimes they weren't. Sometimes there were people that were just trying to trap him and trip him up. They're usually asked by people that are threatened by Jesus. Threatened by the idea of God. Threatened by the idea that he might have come from God. That he might be the spokesman of God. That he might really be who he said he was. The son of God. And generally speaking, those people who were most threatened by Jesus were most threatened because they thought they had all the answers, but he was asking different questions. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why do your followers not wash their hand according to the tradition of our elders? What, do you think it's right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What's the greatest commandment? All of them thought they would trip him up. It's enough to make anybody stutter. Regardless of your political persuasion, it's a great illustration of what that's like, being under that kind of scrutiny and that kind of pressure. Maybe one of the things he's more famous for than anything else, if you ask somebody what they remember about President George W. Bush, W for some, 
Their impression of him was how he could hardly put two thoughts together in a sentence without stuttering and stammering and falling over himself. Now again, this is irregardless of your opinion whether you think he was a good president or not. This is simply an illustration of how tough it is to maintain a train of thought and express yourself coherently when you know everybody is waiting to catch you. One guy interviewed him, and he came by, he went into it with an impression that, you know, well, bless his heart, he's from Texas, he just kind of stutters and stammers around, you know, doesn't really know it. Well, yeah, he had an Ivy League education, but aside from that, as he talked with him and he interviewed him, he was trying to ask him some pretty in-depth questions as well, and he was amazed at how every question he asked was responded to in private with no cameras, no microphones, no spotlights, and he said the wealth of information, the names of rulers all over the world, their economies, their threats. He says, I couldn't believe this. And I said, Mr. President, I'm sorry. I, I really don't mean any disrespect, but where's this guy when you do a press conference? Why do you turn into some kind of a stumbling, bumbling idiot? Because that's how people think you are. And he looked at me and said, if you had any idea and realization that every word, every phrase that you say will be heard and quoted and misprinted all over the world before you can fold up your notes and step off the podium, you'd watch your words too, wouldn't you? And again, irregardless of your opinion of him and his politics, it simply reminds you of what it was like to be under the gun, in the spotlight of scrutiny. And that was certainly the case for Jesus because there were people that were convinced they need, they need to kill him. He needs to die because he's a threat to what we're doing. Because of that, Jesus did not waste his time answering everyone's question. Some of the spiritual leaders that had questions for him, always, were just mad and looking for a fight. You've had people in your life like that, right? Maybe you'll go back to work tomorrow morning and it'll be happy Monday. Somebody's ready to pick a fight with you about what happened last week or what didn't happen last week. In Matthew 21, it says, you know, one of them in one instance phrased a question like this, who gave you the right to say and do these things? Was it from God or is it from man? See, they thought that was the perfect question because he says, well, God told me I could. They're going to say, oh, so God speaks to you now, right? Uh-huh, sure he does. Or if he says, well, God didn't give it to me. I was taught it this way. You know, maybe my mom taught it to me. Or, or, well, one of the teachers taught it to me. Now you're in a fight about, you know, whether or not that teacher knew what they were talking about. And how do you speak for God when really some man taught you what to say? When forced to face a mock trial... He even refused to answer their false accusations. He just kept his mouth shut. And we all know what that's like, don't we? 
when anything you say can and will be used against you. Welcome to marriage, guys. <laughs> Welcome to the in-laws, ladies. You know what that's like, don't you? And yet Jesus understood that sometimes nothing you say is going to be right, so why even bother? Even when he was asked to testify in his own defense, Jesus refused to answer the questions of King Herod. He was just hoping that he'd see some miracle or see some or hear something new out of him. Jesus knew it didn't matter what he said anyway, so he just didn't even bother to answer those questions. But you see, Jesus also has some questions of his own for people, and I would imagine that most of us would be uncomfortable with that idea that Jesus wants to know answers from us. Usually when Jesus asked somebody a question, it was just because he wanted to get their attention, though, not because he was looking for answers. Like when he says, why do you focus on the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and ignore that beam or that plank of wood in your own in Matthew 7? Just wanted to get their attention. Or when he's talking with the woman at the well in John 4, and she's sparring back and forth with him about, you know, right place, wrong place, right religion, wrong religion, you know, all the great church fights that people get into. You've had those conversations where it doesn't matter what you say. If you say black, they say white. If you say up, they say down. That's kind of the way this conversation seemed to be going with this woman in, in John 4. And finally, he looks at her and he says, uh, where's your husband at? He's not looking for information. He's really not checking for wedding bands. He just wants to get her attention. And remind her that maybe, just maybe, he knows more about her life than she wants to acknowledge. Or when he would teach, and he says, tell me, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, walking by the one who had been victimized by robbers, was truly a neighbor? We know that story is the parable of the Good Samaritan because the answer was obvious. The one that nobody expected to get involved was the one who really proved to love his neighbor as himself. No wonder then, by the time you get to Matthew 22, it simply says, nobody dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> it didn't take long for them to realize nobody needs any more of that. But people still typically will ask the same type of questions today. Whether of Jesus, if he were here, they would ask him. But if he's not here, and since he's not here, then they're going to ask people who represent him, like us. And so they'll ask the same type of questions, like you know, philosophical questions. What is truth? Like they ask of Jesus. If a man dies, will he live again? Job 14. Or they'll ask theological questions like, why is there so much evil in the world? Who then can be saved? Luke 13. Or maybe it'll be ethical questions, you know, those things that present moral dilemmas. Like in 1 Corinthians 7, is it better to marry or remain single? Or maybe if we just fast forward into our culture, ethical questions about, well, when does life really begin? And is abortion right or not? Well, what about, what if, what if you were just born that way? Questions of human sexuality, or, or forget human, what about questions of artificial intelligence, where you begin to wonder, 
you begin to wonder if that little robot is going to ask you not to disassemble him. <laughs> and with the speed of calculations, all of a sudden now, you begin to wonder, are they live? Are they real? Or not? People also ask hypothetical questions, usually because they're looking for an argument more than answers. Like, even, even in Scripture, you know, they posed this question to Jesus one time. If a woman remarries, if she remarries six different times because she's a widow, who's she going to be married to in heaven? That's when he had to explain to them that there's not, there's not marriage in heaven. And then, you know, you get the ongoing, you know, hypo hypocritical, hip hypothetical question of, well, if God can create anything, then can God create a rock so big that he can't move it? Good stuff like that, you know, stuff like that that your kids come home from school with. People also, though, usually end up asking very personal questions. Maybe when nobody's around to hear because they're afraid of what answer they might hear back. What's the point of my life? Why am I bothered going to work every day? Does it really make a difference? What's the point of making money? Because in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2, one of the wisest men who ever lived simply describes life as being meaningless. He calls it vanity. It's empty. It doesn't mean anything. It's a waste of our time. Fortunately, I'm sure not a single one of us in here have ever thought about their job and thought, what a waste of time this is. I, I know your students feel that way. You see, people are, people are looking for answers now more than ever in this postmodern world. In the Old Testament, there's kind of this obscure place mentioned when it says in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32, that the men of Issachar, I have no idea where Issachar is, and it really doesn't matter. You, you can still get to heaven without having to answer where is Issachar, right? Or who were those guys? But here you go. The men of Issachar, it says, understood the times, and they knew what Israel should do. You see, in our times... People deal with pessimism and anxiety because of a lifetime of war, terrorism, scandals, and corruptions. People have a fear of commitment, not just in marriage, but of choosing a bank, choosing a church, choosing a car. They can't make up their mind because they're afraid they're going to make the wrong choice. We've got so much information at our hands, more information than we've ever had before, that it's created an overload of information. And now we're afraid if we make a decision, there's going to be new information that comes out by the time I close the laptop. Nothing seems to be permanent anymore except people telling you that you're wrong Welcome to the world of political correctness and diversity training where the only absolute is that nothing is absolute. Are they absolutely sure of that? <laughs> and then you get into the world of visual graphics in CGI, computer generated, or CGT, computer generated technology. Uh, CGI, CGT, look at this. See, I don't even know what I'm talking about here. 
I preach, I don't do computers. But what I do know is that it projects an image. I know there's a Star Wars thing in here somewhere, right? Where the projected image of the guy. You can't even trust what you see with your own eyes or hear with your own ears because it may or may not have actually happened. But all of that leads to more anxiety, more uncertainty, and more questions that beg for answers. That's good news because that means people are desperate to find something that's real. The only irony to that is that when they find it, they've been trained not to trust it. Because there's always more information, right? There's always another shoe to drop. There's always another scenario. There's always a catch. There's always a twist. There's always some clown gonna jump out from behind the corner. That's nothing new. Because every great opportunity is always matched by its challenge. Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, I'm going to stay here for a while because there's a wide open door of a great work here. That sounds like good news. Paul ought to stay there. He ought to keep working there, right? It's a great opportunity. The door's wide open. Fantastic. And then just almost as a, as a parenthetical thought behind it, he says, there's an opportunity for a great work here, but many oppose me. <coughs> People are still interested in spirituality. In a world that seems out of their control, they're searching for inner peace and forgiveness. In a world that needs to turn to God, more people than ever don't know anything about God. And this information was written 10 years ago when it said 54% of people don't know who wrote the four Gospels. 63% didn't even know what a Gospel was, by the way. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There you go. Now you can pass your test and leave. And more than half the people can't even name at least five of the Ten Commandments. They long for a relationship with God, but they don't know anything about God. They want God in their life. They want there to be a God to answer their prayers, to make their life easier, to give them peace, to give them forgiveness, but they don't know anything about God because they don't know anything about the Word of God. That's probably because they never went to a Bible class. You have that opportunity, though, don't you? See how I worked that in there, John? That was pretty smooth, wasn't it? People still long for relationships, though, not just with God, but with each other. That's also known as love. We were created to be like God. We need people in our life. We want to trust people. We want to be trusted. And yet the reality is that there's more abuse, dysfunction, and broken family structures than ever before. And it just creates that craving for more experience of love than ever before. You see, really, bottom line is people are searching for something that makes life work. They want sermons to be practical. They want sermons to make sense because they're looking for God to make sense and make their life work better. Now more than ever, people have come to expect that a better life does exist, and they want it. They're frustrated with their marriage because it wasn't what they thought. They're frustrated with having kids because now my kids don't love me. I just wanted kids. I just wanted somebody to love me. They're frustrated with their career because they thought they'd be further along with this. They're not even making enough to pay their student loan debt 
let alone a house payment or a car payment or you know the drill. There's got to be something more. There's got to be something better. How can I make life work? That's the realization that Peter came to when he wrote this. In 1 Peter 3.15, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Now, I just want an answer. I just want my life to get better, God. I, I want the car to start. I didn't, I'm not talking about worship. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. There are three things that I want you to learn from this, and then I'm done. Well, three things I want you to learn from this, and then, we, and then the work really begins, right? The first one is this. Believers in Jesus have a reason for hope. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, be ready to explain it. I've come that they might have life, Jesus says. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christ in you is the one who brings you hope of glory. Because we believe in what Jesus said, because we believe in who Jesus is, we know we have hope. And because of that, we worship him. <coughs> Just like Thomas, who had his doubts, when finally confronted with the reality that Jesus brought into his life, his response was, my Lord and my God. <laughs> or the response of the people there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, after the resurrection, when Peter stands and announces to everyone that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Their response, what do we do now? You can't uncrucify somebody, can you? And then he explains, well, God kind of did that because he raised the one you crucified from the dead. But if we understand Jesus as Lord, then it has to result in our submission to his authority. So when they ask, what do we do? His response was, each one of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. Be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you'll receive the gift of his spirit. Acts 2, verse 38. You see, in all of this, he would describe worship in these terms. It's not just what you do on Sunday morning when you come together. But he says, brothers, I urge you in view of God's mercy. You see, that's really what we're hoping for, isn't it? Grace to cover our lack of perfection. Grace and mercy to make up for the knucklehead moments in our life. In view of God's mercy, he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. What, I got to be crucified too? I, I got to hang on a cross somewhere? No, there's only one room, or room for one on the cross. If you'll let him, and you read on through, he says, when you offer yourself as a living sacrifice, Jesus would have described it this way, pick up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself daily and follow me. 
He would say this is what's pleasing to God because it's your spiritual act of worship. That's not just a Sunday thing. That's not the times of worship. No, that's, that's who you are. He would go on then to talk about don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Change your mind. Renew, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Find out what the will of God is and approve of it in your life. Get off your high horse, verse 3 in Romans 12. Let your ego behind. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but use the measure of faith God's given you as you consider others as important as you are. And then he does the most amazing thing in talking about worship. And I'll share that with you while David and the praise team make their way to the stage. He says, I want you to live your life as a life of worship. I want you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And that's when our head just gets a little weird about what does that mean. But as he goes on to talk about it, he'll explain that because he says in verse 5 of Romans 12, In Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And he'll go on then to talk in the next few verses of Romans 12 about what worship looks like. Because in this context, worship looks like acknowledging that God has given you certain talents and abilities and gifts, and he encourages you to use it. He acknowledges that there will be opportunities for you to serve others. And when you serve others, that is seen by God as worship. Some people learn how to teach others. And when you teach, God sees that as your worship of Him. Some people wouldn't dare be caught dead in front of a, a group with an open Bible. They couldn't imagine putting them, they think they was George W. Bush, you know, just stuttering and stammering like Porky Pig. Trying to sing Blue Christmas. But those are the people that behind the scenes can give encouragement. And when they encourage others, God sees that as worship. And believe it or not, God even sees it as worship when some people practice generosity and give generously. Some people have the ability to lead and to show mercy and to just do so with some joy in their life and God sees that as worship. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. If someone asks about your hope as a believer, be ready to explain it. You see, worship is more than just calling Jesus your Lord. Even Jesus would say, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Are you responding to what God wants in your life? 
Are you being submissive to God when you know what God wants and you're trying to let Him do it in you and through you? Are you willing to be obedient in following Jesus as your Lord? When you are, that is something God recognizes as worship. Worship Christ as Lord in your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain that hope. Let's do it. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Marysville Christian Church and connect with us, be sure to go to our website, marysvillechristian.org. If you are near the Marysville area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday morning. We have our Bible study classes at 9 a.m. and our regular worship service is at 10 a.m. Our address is 17,000 Waldorf Road, Marysville, Ohio, 43040. Our phone number is 937-642-9838. Email is office at marysvillechristian.org.